Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Monsignor Charles Pope attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Art degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict the 16th. He served as the pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington at blog.adw.org. So please join Father and me in welcoming Monsignor Charles Pope. It's so good to see you, Monsignor. Um, Lord, we entrust this um, this talk to your care. And so, so often, um, many people struggle in their relationship with the Holy Spirit and the gifts that you give. But please help us, Lord, to get more in touch with uh, the zealous joy of um, being saved by you and uh, who rose from the dead to, to help us to walk in newness of life. So help us to have that zealous joy that was so clear in the early church. So we ask this, and we also now entrust this uh, talk also to the care of our Blessed Lady. Regina Celi Letare, Alleluia. Quia quem meruisti portare, Alleluia. Resurrexit sicutixi, Alleluia. Ora pro nobis Deum, Alleluia. Amen. All right, wonderful. Let's back up a little bit and ask ourselves a question. You know, when you look at the early church, particularly the Acts of the Apostles, but also the writings of St. Paul, you see a profound awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. For example, Peter and John are called up to Samaria, north to Samaria, because Philip had been baptizing up there, but they none of them had received the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit through baptism, but that Pentecost event. So even at that early stage, it would seem that the apostles kind of reserved this sacrament to themselves, those first bishops. So they go north to Samaria. And, you know, it doesn't exactly say what happened, but so awesome when they called down the Holy Spirit and confirmed them, the sacrament of confirmation. So awesome was it that Simon, a local magician, not Simon Peter, but Simon, a local magician, Simon Magus, tried to actually buy the power from the apostles. He's like, Wow. I want to be able to make people leap and jump and uh, be this. this. <laughs> and, um, you know, wow. And then if you go to Acts 19, we get a little more information that when Paul baptized a group of people, and then after the baptism, he laid hands on them because he had the rank of bishop and he confirmed them. He called, he he gave them the Holy, you know, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He sealed them. And it says that they began to speak in tongues and make bold proclamations, right? Or even just go with me to the very first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost event itself. I mean, go to that upper room and there are these frightened people. The doors are locked because they're, they're afraid of the Jewish authorities. 
And they're afraid, they're anxious. Christ said, wait, wait here in Jerusalem till you're clothed with power from on high. And all of a sudden, they're gathered there in a strong sound, like a driving wind enters the house and tongues of fire come to part on them. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to make again, bold proclamations and speak of the great works of God. And then suddenly the fearful Peter unlocks the door and goes out and addresses a, a sermon to people who, you know, that he was afraid of just 10 minutes ago. There was a great crowd that was gathering there. So what we see is a remarkable experience of the Holy Spirit rushing in upon them. And I'll tell you something, they noticed. Now, there's another example, just one more example I'll give you from Scripture. You know, Paul is kind of reaming out the Galatians. He said, I can't believe it. You know, you've all, you're giving way to these Judaizers who are coming to you and telling you, you gotta, you got to be circumcised and live according to the Jewish law. He says, what is, what is wrong with you all? Who's bewitched you? And he goes on to say, now, let me ask you a question. When you received the Holy Spirit, was it through works of the law or by faith in Christ Jesus? Now, you find that in Galatians, I think it's chapter two. But notice something. Paul bases an entire argument on an experience that they obviously had. When you received the Spirit, let me ask you a question. When you received the Spirit, did you receive it from works of the law or from, uh, from, from your faith in Christ Jesus? And he's like, and a lot of monarchs say, when I received the Holy Spirit? You know, a Catholic might see me when I was confirmed, you know, that kind of boring event that I sort of filed away and hardly remember. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He's saying he's appealing to an experience when you receive the Holy Spirit. You know, he bases this argument on that. And, you know, I wonder people would kind of look at him today and say, well, um, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, I, uh... And so we've kind of gone from an experience in the early church where the Spirit was very alive and vivid, and people noticed the work of the Spirit in their life. They saw their lives being changed. They experienced miracles, the power to speak and preach the gospel, and the gospel spread almost like wildfire. And yet, somewhere along the line, we settled down pretty, actually pretty early into the church, into a kind of a formalism where prayer became, you know, please don't, don't, I'm not asking everybody to, you know, be a wild charismatic, but things kind of became formalized and people kind of stepped back. And of course, Paul does have to even in, in um, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, liturgy was a little bit off the chain, you know, and he had to kind of rein it in a little and says, now, look, all this talking in tongues, you got to limit that a little, see, and you need to have somebody there to interpret and you need to, uh, you know, let everything be done with good order. You know, this is the worship of God. But you can start to see that what I'm trying to show you is that the early church, their experience of the Holy Spirit was powerful. It was, you know, uh, very vivid and their lives were on fire. So much so that, again, even the liturgies had to sort of, like I say, have to have some regulations and rules, you know. Now, somewhere along the line, this sort of faded and people's ex personal experience of the Holy Spirit in their life became somewhat muted. And I, I can't tell you exactly, I'm not going to say that it never revived anywhere in the church until around 1900, but in our own times, um, there began among both Protestants and Catholics a kind of a movement that later came to be called the charismatic movement in the Catholic church, where people just became more aware and more joyful and alive. And they said, look, you know, St. Paul said, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Jesus, you know, Ephesians, Paul, Paul says, he says in Ephesians 6, he says, you know, uh, uh, are you not aware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were buried together with him so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life? Hmm? 
So you start to see, they started to take these things seriously. These aren't just slogans. These are a powerful way of saying, your, your life is different now that you've met Christ. And that, he, that his Holy Spirit is dwelling in you through baptism and has been quickened through the spirit of confirmation to give you a courage, to give you a joy, to give you a zeal to go out and claim souls for Christ. So what was, let me just get a couple more kind of introductory points in mind before we look at these fruits of the Holy Spirit. So you notice that, again, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand the sacrament of confirmation. They just kind of think of it as kind of, I don't know, something you know, sort of a Catholic bar mitzvah or something, you know, a bat mitzvah. You know, you've got, no, it's, it's not. It's with the whole, with the Pentecost, it's, it's a Pentecost event. It's every Christian's personal Pentecost according to the catechism, right? That's what sac the sacrament of confirmation is. And so what it's meant to do, that word confirm means to strengthen. And it's meant to give you and me the strength, the fortitude, the joy, the zeal to, to accomplish our mission of manifesting and witnessing to Christ in this world and bringing many souls to Christ. And so, again, if, if, if people were to walk into the average Catholic mass, they might be surprised that we all seem a little sleepy. So look, I'm not saying we all have to have wild charismatic worship. I'm not talking about that. I do Tridentine masses, the old Latin mass. I know that Father Hezekiah, of course, all the Eastern rites are extremely joyful. All that singing, you know, hardly a word is said. Everything is sung. And, but in the typical Catholic parish, you can kind of look a little sleepy if we're not careful. And I'm not worried about charismatic expression, but people who are intense and aware. <sighs> the Lord is here. He's ministering to me. And this is changing my life. See? And um, Catholics don't talk like that. And if we're not careful, we just sort of fall into a kind of a bland ritualism and we start to lose our way. And so we need an anointing of the Holy Spirit so that whether you're praying in a very traditional way and wearing a veil for the women and, um, you know, whether we're praying in Latin or whether we're praying in English and singing gospel hymns or whatever we're doing, we're, 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 we're alive. Now, I've been blessed in my priestly life to mainly work with two groups, both of whom are very serious about their liturgy for very different reasons. So I've been in the African-American community and look, ooh, Father, we're going to have some church up in here today. You know, they come with great expectations, you know, and some of the theologians in the, in the Black community refer to this, when people are gathering in the church, there's the hum, the hum. You feel the energy collecting in the room. Ooh, Father, we've been praying you're going to give us a sermon today, and then we're going to, you know, receive the living God, you know. Um, but there's a, there's a high expectation when you when you go to Mass, you see. Or also, the at the other end of the spectrum, I take care of Latin Mass Catholics, you know, the old traditional Latin Mass. And again, they are very serious, very plugged into that liturgy. They follow carefully with their prayer books, and they're very focused on the presence of the Lord and the reverence and the just on their knees and sort of adoration. So you see, I'm not asking you to all these bunch of crazy screaming charismatics, and I put crazy in quotes there, but rather to just in your own way, are you riveted? You know, are you alive? Are you joyful? See, when if, if a person were to walk into a, into a mass, would they say, wow, this is like a wedding? Or would they say it's more like a funeral? So you see, it's supposed to be like a wedding. <laughs> All right. Now, again, um, let's. Um, I need to get down to business here, but I'm trying to set the stage for you that the normal Christian life is to be in a life-changing, transformative relationship with the Lord. See? And uh, it, it's not just the liturgy, but remember, the liturgy is the summit of our prayer. And um, a guy named Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, uh, wrote a book many, many years ago called Liturgy and Personality. 
And basically what he argues in there is, although our first obligation in going to Mass is the, to worship God, and that we do that in justice because God is worthy of our worship, our praise, our gratitude. But there's a secondary effect that comes when we do that, and that is to say our personality begins to be formed and changed by the liturgy so that we get more and more in sync with the Lord and we start to see our priorities changing and the way we think is changed. And both the music and, and the liturgy and the words of the scripture and, and, and of, the, of the, uh, the Roman Missal begin to get inside and they become part of us and we become changed, you see? So yes, the liturgy is the principal way, but in your personal life and in, in, in your prayer, your experience of God and creation, all this is meant to be lit up so that you're in a life-changing, transformative relationship with Jesus. And I'll just say that I'm, I'm sorry to say most Catholics don't really expect much from their relationship with the Lord. And part of the reason is because people like me don't tell them to. No, I do. But I mean, you know, we clergy are not famous for telling people, look, your whole life should be changing because of this message. You know, we kind of all kind of, if we're not careful, settle down to a kind of a mediocrity. And in fact, because of the sin of sloth, a lot of us don't even want a life-changing, transformative relationship. That's too scary. It sounds like too much work, and I might have to give up my favorite sins. And that's just too much work. It's too much change. And so there's a lot of forces at work within us that are trying to tamp down the Holy Spirit and the normal Christian life that God wants to give us. See? A life that's enthusiastic, that's in love with God, so grateful. And so, again, amazed at, at God's work in my life, you know? And even if it's been a very slow study, it's a work. See? And so finally this, and then we'll get into the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Look, we want to have our own testimony. And you need to ask an anointing of the Holy Spirit. But I want to just tell you my, uh, just a very brief testimony. I won't give all the details, but, you know, I've been going since I, I entered the seminary about 35, 36 years ago. So since that time, Mass every day. I've been reading scripture in the divine office every day. Uh, confession once a week. Um, you know, this, obviously the celebration of the liturgy itself, the, the Holy Mass. I've been walking in holy fellowship with good brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, I have been, uh, you know, just as I say, uh, you know, as I say, studying and praying a holy hour at least every every day. And I want you to know I'm a changed man. Now, I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. See, the Lord's been at work in my life. And I can say, okay, the last six weeks, I don't know it's a big change. But I tell you this, and I promise you this, 20, the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, big change, big change. The Lord's at work in my life. You see, sacraments work. Okay, Prayer works. That, uh, you know, the, the um, particularly, you know, the, the, um, the, the liturgy, you know, works. And little by little, we're transformed, you see. And even that's what, you know, we're, we're holy fellowship. I'm not talking coffee and donuts, okay, y'all? I'm talking about that I've, I've been blessed to walk with several communities for long periods of my life. And th they have witnessed the faith to me and helped me to become the man I am, see? Fellowship works. So I often say to my congregation, because I've been with them as pastor for 14 years, but really, since I had a time with them uh, two, two assignments ago as well, I've been with them for the better part of 25 of my 32 years as a priest. And I'm gonna, I always say to them, for you, I'm your pastor. With you, I'm your brother. But from you, I'm your son. Okay. So I want you to see that 
our lives, the normal Christian life is to be alive, joyful. Some of these fruits we're going to look at, they have a peace, a kind of a serenity, you see, um, to, to be able to become more patient, more kind, more generous. Because, and where does this come from? It's, it's, it's God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Father through their Holy Spirit living their lives in us. We're set on fire and we're brought up to the temperature of glory. And that's the normal Christian life. Okay, so tepidity and boredom and what do you call it? mild depression is not the normal Christian life. All right. You're supposed to be alive. See, ask for it. Desire it. Okay. So let's begin to get into the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Some people get confused. There's seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then we also talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the only way I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into a long talk about the seven gifts, but they are wisdom, understanding, knowledge, counsel, piety, fortitude, and fear of the Lord. And these gifts are slightly different from the fruits in this sense, that the gifts are sort of poured into us. They're, they're, they're kind of infused virtues that come with us at both baptism and they're strengthened in confirmation, but they come to us in our relationship with Christ. But in a way, they're, they're gifts in the sense that it's not a something that, uh, you know, they, they come to us as a direct kind of gift or infusion from God. Whereas fruits, and you can just tell the word fruit, a fruit means that, look, I'm allowing the Lord, the Lord to work in my life, to live in my life. And what are then some of the fruits of that? So the fruits of the Holy Spirit are more dependent upon us than are the gifts. Okay, now I'm not saying the gifts have no dependency on us, but I am saying that they're more, they, they emphasize much more the gift and the work, direct work of God, whereas the fruits emphasize more, if you will, with our cooperation, what the God's grace can and, and will do. Okay. Now, where do we get them? Well, it comes from Galatians 5 and the 22nd verse, Galatians 5 and 22, where Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us then keep in step with the Spirit and not become conceited or provoke or envy one another. Okay, now, since we live by the Spirit, hmm, do you see there's a big premise there? <laughs> what does it mean to live by the Spirit? I can say the whole creed from memory. You know, I mean, so you get the idea that this uh, living by the spirit is, you know, I want you to have clear doctrine. This is one of the reasons the ICC exists. Let's not make any mistakes. You stick close to the doctrine. You stick close to the revealed word of God. OK, but at the end of the day, there comes a moment when you want like your life to become like a laboratory where everything that is said by the church and in, the, in her sacred scriptures and in her, in her, her sacred teachings are true. Why? Because in the laboratory of my life, I've tested them and found them to be true, okay? And so the fruits of the Holy Spirit are one of those ways we look for certain things to become more alive. What does it mean to be, as it says here, um, uh, living by the Spirit? What will happen to us when Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, lives his life in us, okay? Now, let's let's uh, begin to look at each of these fruits, right? But I, I, I never want you to forget that this, what this is saying is, this is what our life begins to look like, sound like, and be like as, as we let the Lord through his Holy Spirit live his life in us, okay? So uh, these things are, again, uh, the signs or the fruits of our transformation in Christ. Now, let's begin. Uh, the first gift is love. Now, the Greek word here is, as you probably know, is agape, 
There are different words for love, you know, uh, storge is family love in Greek. Um, you know, we, we have um, philios, uh, philio, you know, the, um, that's the, um, you know, brotherly love, right? And um, eros is, you know, don't think erotic, but it's, 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 it's that ordinary love that, uh, that people have for one another where, you know, there's a reciprocal relationship, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to develop all that, but the word here, agape, is that considered in the church the, one of the highest, the highest form of love? It's a, a love that is selfless, unconditional. It's vigorous. One loves and doesn't count the cost. You see, it's, it's not based on mere reciprocity. You give and I receive. I, I give and you receive. I get something out of the deal. You get something out of the deal. I simply love because I love. If I get nothing except scorn and derision, isn't that what Christ had on the cross for us? He got scorn and derision, but he loved us to the end. Okay. It's, it's, it is wanting only what's good for the other, okay? St. Thomas, it may sound a little academic and dry, but to love is to will the good of the other, see? Now, that's good because it takes it out of a merely an emotional realm. But I, I don't think that a love that has absolutely no affection is really, you know, fully developed, okay? You know, it's possible to have affection, even if it's just kind of like a form of understanding, even for your enemies, right? And the Lord can do that, you know? The Lord can look at people with love, even who hated him in return. All right. Now, just a couple of the thoughts, and then I want to kind of just develop for my notes and then give you a couple more things to think about. Agape love is far above all these things. Um, it's a work of God so as to come to its fullest expression. So it's rightly called a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's let's look at love at two levels. What we, We're told that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Now, the first, if you will, fruit of the Holy Spirit that we should expect is a divine affection for God. I mean, I really love the Lord. You know, I love the Father. He's been good to me. I really love him. It's just the thought of God just fills me with joy. You know, that's the, that this is the fruit to look for, to really love the Father and to love his son, Jesus, and what he's done. And that Holy Spirit is just the very, the very person loving God back. So it's not just simply human love we're looking for, but God's own love. You know, every now and again, the people, the couples pick for the wedding, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, it is not rude, it is, you know, you know, you know the passage. And, and that's nice, but they're kind of missing the point. It's not simply a celebration of human love. love nice though that is. But I'm going to tell you right now, frankly, human love isn't always patient or kind. It, it does It does sometimes take offense too quickly. Sometimes the people we love the most, we take the most offense and get, you know, the most possessive of. Our human love is very imperfect. We need God's love. And so uh, these couples who pick this reading, you know, it's kind of like as if it were a celebration of romantic and marital love. Well, that's nice, but that's not what it really is. It's, we're talking divine love there. You see, the very love of God that comes into our heart. And we just begin, listen to this carefully, we have a divine affection for God, a divine affection, not just a human affection, but God's own love through his Holy Spirit comes into our heart. And we just love the father. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus just loved his father. He really loved them. He talked about him all the time. See? And what was his main goal for us? To, to tear that veil and to open up again the way to the father through his open heart, which was heaved open on the cross, we could see the very heart of God. And Jesus says, come back to my father. The way is opened again for you. See, love him like I do. Jesus really loves his father. 
see? And he wants us to love him, see? And of course, we want to love the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But again, the real goal for both of them, the Spirit and Jesus, is to bring us back to the heart of the Father, okay? You see the vision? To just have this affection, this joyful love for the Father, okay? Now, this is interesting because many people today struggle a lot with this, you know, especially if they've had a rough relationship with their earthly father, right? Sometimes they think fathers are stern or the father is distant. And I know about Jesus and maybe the Holy Spirit, but the father, and you know, and there's a kind of a father wound, some, you know, our fatherhood and our, our whole culture is in crisis right now. Huh? We know that. So this can be difficult for people to bridge the gap. And I'll tell you, I had to go through it. And I won't give you a long story because I got to keep moving. But I will tell you, my gosh, there was a time in my life when I was probably more fearful but as I worked through my struggles with my own earthly father and other things, and the Holy Spirit just broke open this beautiful love for the father. And um, I think of all the members of the Blessed Trinity, I think I'm closest in just in an emotional sense, but I'm closest to the father. I really love him. And um, I will say that um, St. Paul tries to describe it this way, that you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba. Abba, which is not baby talk. As most of you know, Abba is the word that even an adult will use for their earthly father. You know, you can go to the Middle East and you'll hear it all the time. Someone called Abba, Abba, you know, someone calling out for their father. And um, it's uh, it's the normal word for father, but it's the family term. When my father was alive, I didn't say, hello, father. How are you today, father? I would say dad, dad. And he would sign his letters, El Dado. So um, these are the things that, you know, this is a, a, the, the Holy Spirit wants to give us a spirit of adoption. Saying a word, you can teach a parrot to say Abba. The, the point is to experience the reality that God isn't some deity or some omnipotent. You know, he is those things, but the deity, he is omnipotent, but he's your father. He loves you. He's Abba. OK, and we had to find that balance, not to trivialize and don't turn him into a grandfather. Oh, whatever you want, I'll just dote on you. He is a father, but he loves us. Now, then the second part of this is to love our neighbor. But here's the key point. I love if I really love God, I really love him. I love what he wants, what he loves and who he loves. So I love his commandments. I love his law. I love his teachings. And I love everyone he loves, including my enemy, because this is not simply a human love. This is God's love in my heart. You see? So the the if you go back to your, you know, the um, faith, hope and charity, the, you know, the theological virtue of love, you know, remember, you may remember it says to love God for his own sake and my neighbor for the sake of God. You know, in other words, because God loves my neighbor, because God loves truth and chastity, because I love these things and these people. You see, I love them, right? All right, well, I have to move on, but I, I hope you see that it's a relational love. See, this isn't just, you know, some, I do more spiritual push-ups and I make, I try to force myself to love. I promise you, if it's just going to be human, a human effort, it'll last 10 minutes max, and you'll be back to resentments and anger and counting the cost, okay? All right, time to move on. Love, joy. Okay, now the Greek word here is kara, not shara. Is it, the joy referred to you here is more than a passing chorkling joy, like I just heard a joke, ha, 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 you know, but rather, it's, it's, or a worldly joy, it's deeper than an emotional experience. It's rooted in God, and it comes from him. Because it comes from God rather than the world, then, it's more serene, and it's more stable, 
than worldly joy, which worldly joy is is often tied to the external conditions. You know, I'm happy because I won the lottery. I'm unhappy because my brother is ill with cancer. You know, there's some external thing that may affect my emotions, but this is deeper. See, this joy is a deep, serene, stable, and confident joy. Hmm? Now, by the way, I think it's linked to the joy of the Beatitudes. You know, blessed or happy are those who da 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 da. The Greek word there is makarios. The Latin word is beatus. Now, Thomas Aquinas comments on this joy or this happiness uh, that is called beatus in Latin and makarios in Greek as the key aspect that distinguishes it from just the ordinary human emotion of laughter or a joy as it has a stability. In other words, it is not easily shaken by external events. And that's the key point that he makes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is announcing a happiness and a joy that is deep, serene, stable, and confident. Likewise, this joy as the fruit of the Holy Spirit is deep, it's serene, it's confident, but above all, it is stable. It is not easily snatched from us, even if there are some sorrows on the surface of our life. Deeper down, we know there's a joy. And we may not like going through suffering, but it, we know that it has a meaning, that God is up to something good, that he, that, that he will draw something out of it that will be good for me and for others. Okay, And this, this sense of meaning is very important. You see, we live in a world today where suffering has no meaning. In fact, most things don't have any meaning. We're living in an existential kind of world where people just make up stuff. And but we we are not that way. We as Christians have been given a meaning and suffering, even suffering has a meaning. Our life has direction and purpose. And if we are living according to that direction and purpose, we're going to be as happy as we can be in this world. But I tell you again, that even when suffering does come, it doesn't steal our joy because we have a sense that this this will redound to glory somehow. This will indeed make me a better person. Okay, something good will come from this. All right. Now I don't want to overly intellectualize that. It's a deep trusting joy. You see the vision? Okay. So I got to keep moving. But notice again here. If this is some human joy, I'm laughing because I just heard a joke. Jokes are fine. They have their place. Or, you know, I just got some, you know, kind of good news. I got a little raise or whatever, you know. Ah, and I'm nice. I'm nice. But then you go home and have an argument with your spouse and the poof, it's gone, you know. And um, so, again, this this is deeper. OK, this is a fruit of the spirit. It's a fruit that lasts. It's a fruit that's stable. Now, again, that St. Thomas says it is not easily taken away. However, that doesn't mean it can't ever be taken away. If we fall into serious, unrepented mortal sin and we remain far from God, this can fade because the fruit is no longer being nourished. We're cut off from the branch through mortal sin. Okay, But if we're living a good sacramental stable life, it is not easily taken away from us. All right. So we have love and joy. We have peace. Irene in Greek. Uh, if anyone is named Irene, your name means peace. Okay. Now, again, and we have to rescue the word from its English meanings. Generally in English, peace means the absence of conflict. So I'm not killing you or I'm not yelling at you. Okay. Or you me. Well, that's all right. But it, it's not, in Greek and Hebrew, it's much richer than that. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is in, in, the, in the Hebrew and also the Greek word. It is the presence in the relationship of everything that should be there. Okay, so we're talking about things like, you know, uh, mutual love, support, encouragement, something called reciprocity, that give and take. There is a, a sense, again, as I say, of mutual love, mutual respect. My, your concerns are my concerns. You're my brother. You're my sister. 
there is this sense that there is present in the relationship justice, that there is mercy, that there is kindness, that there is a, a present in the relationship, everything that should be there. The Greek word is actually very interesting. It kind of has the image of all the pieces, like I think of a puzzle and all the pieces of the puzzle are present. Or it's actually, there's an interesting kind of it's like sticks almost wrapped up and all the, everything just wrapped up tight and everything that should be there is there. Okay. It's, in, it's about integrity. It's about having all the pieces together. So again, you'll see how, you see how rich this is. Now, therefore, then what is peace at the experiential sense? Well, first of all, between us and the father, remember Jesus never said peace be with you until after the resurrection. Why? Because before then there was not peace. Now, the way back to the Father, through the heart of Christ, the open heart, the open wound in Christ's side is the way back to the Father. And we experience the Father's love. We love the Father. We love to worship him, to praise him. And so there comes now into our relationship with God things that should be there. Not aversion, boredom, oh, I got to go talk to God, and God is mad, mad at God, but rather this gift of being in this relationship with God where everything that should be there is there. Now, of course, on God's side, it's always there and offered. But on my side, well, you see, but the fruits of the Holy Spirit is the Lord lives his life in us increasingly, like I said, in my own life, this journey. I mean, I really love the Father. I love him. I just love him. And I can't even explain it. It's just, it's, it's not just a human love. It's just this love, this affection. And I'm so grateful. See? And so again, uh, this, uh, this uh, understanding of peace, you see, is much richer than just the absence of conflict. Okay. Uh, now, among each other, once again, the same idea that when I really love God and I experience that love and I'm at peace with him, increasingly, then I'm at peace with you. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we can always live in peace with everybody because they're not willing. But I don't hate anybody. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't want to, I don't want vengeance. You know, whatever grievances of the past, you know, between you and me or your ancestors and my ancestors, that, that, that's not that's not a big issue anymore. You know, now I'm not saying in our world we should never adjudicate injustices or crimes, right? We live in a big bad world. But at the end of the day, I don't personally hate you or hold grudges against you just because you're of this ethnic group or because uh, your grandfather did something to my grandfather or um, you did something to me or something like that. I don't hate you at all. I love you and I want I want what's best for you. And so there's this shalom. Now, not everybody has it toward us, but we are at peace because we know that even if somebody's hurt you very deeply, God says, look, I saw everything. And I promise you, if they die unrepentant, they will answer to me. Now, you give it to me and let go. All this venom, anger, bitterness, no, it's gone, see? And it's replaced by an understanding, a love. Well, maybe this person was hurt, and that's why they hurt me. I don't know their full story, but I just know that I hope they repent, and I hope to be with them in heaven one day when we can really have a conversation, even if I can't now. You know, I don't hate them, okay? Do you follow me? Okay. As the Lord lives his life in us, you see, these kinds of things come alive. Love and joy and peace. Continuing to move on. Patience. Oh, my. Greek word there is makrothumia. The Greeks use this word to describe what a man is exhibiting when he could exact punishment, but doesn't avenge himself. Okay. You know, makrothumia could maybe be translated long-tempered or um, not hot-headed, right? Now, but let me go to the Latin root of the word, if I could, because I think even the Latin root of our English word patience is even more illustrative. Patience comes from a Latin word, patior. Um, it's a passive, it's in the passive voice, and it, it means literally, I am made to suffer, okay? So what is patience then? It is the capacity and or willingness to suffer. 
usually on account of other people <laughs> or situations, right? So again, you know, sometimes for the sake of a greater good, I'll endure the fact that my husband, wife is always late or they're, they're you know, they're all, you know, but we, at some point we're willing to just suffer that for some greater good because of the marriage or because I, I, I love other aspects of them and I don't want to focus on the negative. It is the capacity or the willingness to suffer. Do you know how we drove Jesus crazy when he walked this earth? You know, there were times when he would, you know, he just the exasperating long explanations. And two lines later, the apostles show they don't get it. You know, for example, he, 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 gave, he gave them a sermon about the greatest among you must become the servant of all. And the next thing you know, they're debating among, among themselves about who's the greatest. Two lines later, or one time he finally turned them and how much longer must I tolerate you? <laughs> but he did tolerate us, you know, long, exasperating explanations. And then even up on the cross, you know, the kind of suffering that we gave him. And he just kept saying he just loved us to the end, you see. Uh, the patience, the willingness to suffer. See? And for most of us, it's not the big crosses like Jesus had. Those things will come in our life. But most of the time, it's just those death by a thousand cuts things that come up, you know, little annoyances. Someone's taking too long in the line ahead. Who writes a personal check at the grocery store? I mean, come on. You know, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, we can just, you know, we can just be beside ourselves in a minute in traffic or what have you. But when, when the Lord starts to live his life in us and this fruit of the Holy Spirit comes to life, we become more calm. We're willing to say, well, sufferings like these are bound to come. It's my little daily crosses that the Lord asked me to carry. And I'm happy to do it. Not happy, but I'm willing to do it. And um, it's, uh, it's just part of life. And you see, we start to simply accept that this is part of life. And so much anger in us is caused by resent and resentment is caused by unrealistic expectations that everyone should be on my schedule. There should never be delays, that everything should work all the time, that every time I can turn on my computer, it should be in perfect shape. And my iPhone should always be working. We have all these you know, expectations and some of them are unrealistic, you know, and then we get all bent out of shape in a minute. But when we start to have this fruit of patience, we recognize that ah, I don't get everything done every day. There are interruptions. There are people that have annoying habits. I don't have any, but everybody else does. And, um, you know, um, faults in others, I can see, but praise the Lord, there's none in me, you know. Okay, you see the idea. We start to become more laid back, willing and able uh, to suffer, okay? Because suffering is part of law. You see, it's the fruit of the spirit, all right? I got to keep moving, all right? I know you'll have some questions about these things, all right? Kindness, the Greek word here is krestos. In, in Greek, old wine was called krestos, which means that it was mellow or smooth, right? Ah, the wine is krestos, you know? Now, um, we have here, though, um, a little more of an idea of krestos. It, it, it's a very interesting word in Greek, Remember when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the word easy that's translated usually in English as easy there is krestos. And what does it mean? It means well-suited or well-fitting. There is this um, idea that um, I, think, I, I almost think it was a, a, an advertising slogan that Jesus had on his storefront when he did carpentry work. You know, what easy or well-fitting yokes sold here. All right. As a carpenter, he probably would have made these, you know, animals. You don't put a rope around an animal's neck and ask it to pull a wagon. And we, so what you do is you put a wooden truss across the animal or some type of thing that spreads the, the, the load across the whole front of the animal's chest. And, um, and that way the animal can do that. But even if, if the yoke isn't carefully carved to fit the contours of that animal, it will get blisters and, you know, you get the idea. So a carpenter like Jesus would work very hard to make that thing like a bit like an old shoe. 
you know? We all love old shoes, don't we? They may look lousy, but they sure do feel good. You know, you put on a new pair of shoes and prepare for blisters, right? So the idea here is that crestos means smooth, easy, or well-fitting, okay? Now, what does this mean in terms of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and our relationships with each other? Again, it means, again, there is this, there's a spirit-produced goodness that meets the needs of others and it avoids harshness. It's well-suited to the moment. Now, there are times, especially like when you're a parent, you have to insist. You know, my dad, I, one of my would protest, you know, I don't like that, dad, I don't want to do it. Dad would say, your concerns are duly noted. Now go do what I told you. You know, he he didn't you know yell at me and you know shake his fist and all that, but he was he was firm, but in a gentle way. Or um, you know, he would say, "I didn't say I wanted to discuss it, son. Just go take care of it." You know, <laughs> so there's a certain smoothness or calmness in the moment that's free of anger and having to win. But you know, at times we do have to insist. At other times we can let things go. You know, again with that same idea of patience. So. Christos is this idea to be smooth, to be adaptable to the moment, knowing that sometimes we have to insist, but we can be gentle. We don't have to raise our voice and yell and threaten. We can be, you know, ideally gentle and so on. So again, as the spirit begins to live his life in us, as Jesus and God the Father are living their life in us through the through their Holy Spirit, you notice how patient and and how you know God seldom, you know, some people are asking God, send the big chastisement, Lord. We're in bad shape down there. Be careful. <laughs> but you see the idea that God is slow to do that. I don't know if you've noticed, but God does not seem to be in a big rush. Even in this just cultural crisis that we're in, he's so patient and he's so, you know, in a way kind. You're like, Lord, I wouldn't tolerate us any longer, you know. But again, I can tell you this, Lord, if you're going to bring down the great chastisement, take me out in the initial blast. I don't think I can live without running water and electricity and computers, all the stuff I've gotten used to. I don't know how to hunt. I, I, I don't know. You know, so be careful before you ask for a great chastisement. But anyway, but you see how, in a way, generally speaking, and I'm not saying there aren't times where God does punish, and sometimes he does bring down severe penalties on, on ancient Israel and the church. But fundamentally, he's very, he's very uh, smooth, very even-handed, persistent, but gentle, and he moves in slow stages. He's not in a big rush. He doesn't crush, doesn't yell and scream, you know, these kinds of things. So these huge, large chastisements and things are more rare than common, even though we, they're often highlighted in the Bible. Okay. Generosity. Wow. Generosity is like kindness, but it involves giving beyond what's expected. Okay. Now, look, where does generosity come from? I'm going to just tell you where I know it comes from in me. Gratitude. Gratitude. God has been so, so good to me, you know? First of all, I live in America, and I know there's a lot of people trashing our country today, but I love this country, at least in what we've been in our best moments. People are literally dying to try to get to this country, you know, and to just simply be born here. That's thank you, Lord, you know, and for all our troubles, we can have a dependable electrical grid and I flush the toilet and don't have to worry about it. You know, you name it. I mean, all the little creature comforts, the things we have in this. I mean, kings and queens would have just died to have these things. And yet we just live with them every day. And then the first thing goes wrong. My iPhone isn't working right today. Oh, what's this world coming to? You know, but but if we're really grateful and we cultivate gratitude, we're different. We're more generous. We're more kind. Because we're just aware how good God has been to us. And there's a special anointing of, that comes from the Holy Spirit that makes us generous. And it's that awareness of God's goodness to us. How just 
astonishingly good God has been to us. And even when I didn't think he was being good to me, he was still being good to me. Most of you remember Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love and trust the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things, not just the good things that I like that are obvious, but even those gifts in a strange package. I look back over my life like you do, and I can say that as much as I didn't like them, uh, I, like you, have had crises in my life. I've had sudden losses in my family and things like that. I can simply say to you that I will tell you um, that as I look back on those things, I, I see that they were in a way good for me. I needed them, even though I didn't want them. And somehow God improved my character, made me a better man, a better priest, better disciple. Okay. So I just simply say, I, you just can't, it just think of all the good things that God is doing at every moment, every fiber of your being, every molecule, every atom of every molecule, every part of every atom, every quark, whatever, whatever is all the way down to the, just the knitting and the fabric of the entire universe. God's holding it all together and taking care of everything. You walk outside and never even think about it. Photosynthesis is going on. And so we breathe out CO2 and the trees breathe it in and give us back oxygen. Pretty nice arrangement. Thank you, God. And we walk right past it all day and we say, well, I have a new car. I have a car trouble again. You know, okay. But, you know, compare that to the 10 trillion things that went right today. So you see generosity. People are generous because they're grateful at what God has done for them. And because they're grateful, they also realize that God will continue to bless them. And so they're less fearful and they give sometimes even to the point where it hurts a little. You see, God's somehow going to take care of me. Now, I'm not saying be foolish, just throw money away. But at the end of the day, grateful people are also more trusting and that helps you to be generous. So you see, so generosity is this, just this, look how generous God is and the Holy Spirit living in us. Oh my, we become God, you know, the goodness and the generosity, right? Now this next one, goodness. So again, patience, kindness, generosity, now goodness. It's more difficult to define because it rarely occurs in secular Greek, but it it, 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 re, it re simply revolves around, again, this, this overall personality that seeks harmony and peace and goodness with other people and wants the good for others, uh, isn't possessive or uh, competitive in, in, an, in an inappropriate way. I mean, there are some good forms of competition, but it brings out excellence in us. But you get the point. We're not obsessive with always winning and getting our way and, and so on. There's a basic just goodness. I want what's good for me, but I want what's good for you. And um, there's just a kind of a uh, just an appreciation that I'm happy when you get good things. I'm not envious or jealous. Um, if you have a gift, I'm glad for you. I have my gifts. I don't have all the gifts and you don't have all the gifts, but together we have all the gifts. So there's just a basic goodness which which comes to us that we want the good for others and we are we are rejoicing in the goods that we re the good that we receive from God. Okay. Now, I got to keep moving because we got about six more minutes, okay? Uh, so I got to kind of shorten it here a little bit. But fidelity. Now, again, in this case, pistis is the Greek word. It's the, it's the common word for being trustworthy, faithful, reliable. So pistis means, you know, to believe in God, but uh, fidelity. But this form of the word is much more about being trustworthy, about being faithful, reliable, okay? It's the, you know, uh, it, it, by extension, though, you know, it, it, it means, you know, although it means to believe in God, it also by extension can be, um, as I say, reliable, faithful and trustworthy. Now, the connection is that, again, as I learn to trust God, I become more stable. I know when I can say yes and I say yes and I mean what I, yes when I mean yes and no when I have to say no. But um, I'm, I'm reliable and trustworthy. Why? Because I'm trusting God. 
You know, yes, I can help with this. Or maybe we have to sometimes say, no, I can't. But let me see if I can find someone who can help you, you know, something to that effect. But we um, we uh, so faithfulness or trustworthiness or reliableness comes from our experience with God, the Holy Spirit living within us, that we know that God is trustworthy, that he's reliable, that he holds, he he's faithful with the gifts and, and the things that he promises. And as I, as I begin to discover that, I become that way toward others. Okay. All right. Gentleness. It's interesting. The, the older Bibles translate this as meekness. Meekness. Protes is the Greek word. And um, same Thomas Aquinas, uh, quoting actually Aristotle, says that meekness or protes, the Greek word, um, uh, is 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 the middle proper middle ground between too much anger and not enough anger. Did you hear me? Between too much anger and not enough anger, because you see, when you love God and you love others and you want what's good for them, there is sometimes a righteous anger that comes when we see injustice. And we speak and uh, we act, not not throwing things, breaking furniture, you know, some of the stuff we're seeing in our culture today. But when we see injustice, we're concerned about it because we care about people and we 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 love people and we love we love God's justice. And we want to see what's right be, in fact, you know, prominent on prominent display. OK, it, there is a proper anger. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus was angry quite a bit. It's not just when he cleansed the temple, but, you know, some of those. Whoa, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. Look what you do. You see, you should be teaching God's people, and yet you're oppressing them. You know, he goes on and on with these woes. I mean, and he's righteously angry with them because their hearts are hardened and they're treating, they treat people miserably. They just consider them all the great unwashed when it's their job to be out there preaching the good news to him like he is. See, and that's a righteous anger he has toward them. And so again, um, but again, we also know that anger is an unruly emotion. So one of the fruits of the spirit is the ability through this virtue to be able to kind of have authority over our anger, to know when and how to express it in a way that's constructive and not, and how to avoid destructive uses of it, okay? And so, unfortunately, in our culture today, we have a lot of destructive anger, not constructive anger, right? I wish I had more time to develop that, but I've got to, the last three we'll just group together because I think uh, Paul only mentioned self-control, but the church breaks it into two other versions of self-control. There's general self-control, okay, um, which is, you know, that, that, that idea that we learn to moderate all things in our life, including moderation, because there's a time to be celebrated. Okay. But there's also two subsets that the church adds to St. Paul's list just from the tradition, namely modesty and chastity. Okay. So modesty is to reserve a proper mean or middle ground, you know, in terms of the reverence for the mystery of our bodies. Okay. There are just some things that other people have no business seeing and uh, should not be on open display or these types of things. And those who dress modestly or are properly uh, exhibiting a kind of a self-control by only displaying those aspects of their bodies that, 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 that must be in reserving other aspects of their body for that deep mystery of marriage, um, childbearing, and so on, okay? And then we have, uh, as I say, chastity, which is, again, the virtue to we exhibit, where we exhibit proper sexual expression based on our state in life. So for a married couple to be wholly faithful to each other, both in body and in mind and heart. And then uh, for the rest of us who aren't married, no genital sexual contact with anybody ever. No exceptions. No exceptions. Okay. So if we're not in your on-site biblical marriage, you're going to live chastely. Okay. That is to say, abstain from uh, genital sexual you know, intimacy. Okay. 
I had to go through the last of those a little more quickly, but what I, I don't want you to forget. What I want to say is that these things are fruits that should be coming more and more alive in us as we walk with Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells us and brings us up to the temperature of glory. And again, we start to experience that normal Christian life where we're seeing our life change. Sin is being put to death and grace, graces and graciousness coming alive, faith and faithfulness coming alive. You see, we see these things. So and when you get to a long list like this, you can kind of say, I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm kind of, I'm kind of lost in the woods here, uh, Monsignor there. Look, take this list and say, are there certain areas in my life where maybe Maybe I could work on a, one of these a little bit more like maybe joy. Maybe I'm kind of a grouch, always negative. Maybe I need to ask for a little more joy, you know, to be exhibited in my life. Not that we don't ever get serious and say, look, this culture's in trouble. But I, I want you to know I've heard another way and it's beautiful. Thank you so much, Monsignor Pope, for, for that wonderful talk. So the first question is, you know, there are people who have never been baptized, who have these, shall we call them characteristics? I, I guess you you wouldn't exactly call them fruits of the Holy Spirit if they, if they haven't been baptized, if they don't have the Holy Spirit. So what is the difference between these fruits of the Spirit being just kind of like general human characteristics or traits and being a fruit of the Spirit? How does that work? You may remember when we talked about the very first one, love, I said that, look, you know, the problem is that human love is far less perfect and less sublime and it's, it vacillates a lot. And so we can see people who have characteristics and maybe they tend to be more loving or more patient than the average person. And that's an aspect of their personality. But there are times when it fails, not just that they become nah, testy, for example, but sometimes they're patient when they shouldn't be. Or the, their understanding of love is is flawed in that they just think it means kindness and affirming everybody. And so they lack a center. So it's not the vigorous, per perfect versions of these virtues. And I'm not saying any of us necessarily, all of us, possess all these things perfectly right now. But as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, it will have that proper, love will be proper. It will know when to say absolutely not. That is not acceptable and it will not take place. And that's said in love, not in you know, but a lot of people say, oh, man, if you don't like agree with me, you're a hater. No, you see, that's what they're doing there is they're equating love merely with kindness. Now, kindness is an aspect of love, but it's not, you know, so is rebuke, you know, at least properly understood. So, you know, so anyway, I'll just leave it at that because I know we have a lot of questions. But in other words, the difference would be that even though human beings can have these things imperfectly on their own, some aspects of these, to have them, the perfect version, continue to grow in our life requires uh, baptism and, if you will, that life of the Holy Spirit in us. Sure. All right. I see. And as you're raising your hand, go ahead and take yourself off of mute. As you were talking, Monsignor, it, by the way, excellent talk. Thank you so much. Hmm. It, something came to my mind, and it's that seems to me that if we don't uh, have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, you know, a love, the other ones are pretty much impossible. Am I right? Well, there's a reason it's first, isn't there, in the list. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even elsewhere, St. Paul says, look, these, th these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I can speak with, I can, have, I can be a prophet, I can do all these great things, but if I don't have love, I'm just nothing. So I think you're right. Um, it's a little bit like baptism is a doorway to all the other sacraments and graces. So is love the doorway to all these other fruits of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's a good observation. Thank you. Monsignor, we're getting a couple of questions in saying, 
how do I know that it's the Holy Spirit? And and they're using, you know, different things. Like, how do I know that it's the Holy Spirit that's giving counsel? And this is not just my own thoughts here. How do I know if I have the grace of God within me? How do I know when that grace is helping me with my relationship with God? Well, I'm going to give a kind of a smart, snarky answer and maybe a more serious one. The snarky answer is, I don't know, just keep swimming. You'll find out later. <laughs> okay. But number two, I, I have found in my life where suddenly I realized I'd forgiven somebody and I knew it wasn't me. I couldn't have done it. You know, I did something, you know, let me just put it to you this way. I don't want to get too specific because it involves some family members, but I was very hurt and angry and bitter for many years. And I worked real hard. I did, you know, among other three reasons, I, I went through some therapy and some group therapy and Al-Anon meetings and things like that, you know, just to kind of let go. And I just realized one day I woke up and um, I wasn't angry anymore. In fact, I had a sort of certain understanding and affection. And I, I, I realized it wasn't me. I, I don't know when it went away. So in other words, I think sometimes we certainly have a powerful experience that there's something in me, a patience or a kindness, especially toward maybe certain people and individuals that I can't quite explain. And um, it's, it's, it's not, I, I just know it's not me. So that would be the more serious thing. But again, I don't, I was being a little flip, but I, I still mean what I say. We don't always go right away, but keep swimming and you'll find, and if it deepens and gets purer and better, you know, it's of God. If it's just a human thing, it'll often backfire. Like I said, if a person is too patient or, you know, they misunderstand love, it's going to go, it's going to go bad. Okay. Like in our culture, right? Tolerance is a beautiful thing. It's kind of a subset of patience, but it can go too far. And you see how it's backfired. And now everything has become not tolerance, but you will comply or you will go, you, you, will, you, will, you will suffer everything, you know, and mercy and forgiveness have left our culture now. So tolerance is the wrong kind of tolerance. This fruits are ugly, ugly, because we're we're being asked to tolerate that which is evil. And then suddenly evil starts to eat its own. And yeah, anyway. Uh, Gino asks, could you recommend scripture from the Old Testament and scripture from the New Testament detailing fire, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, and maybe some songs that might relate as well? Yeah, well, I mean, rather than give chapter and verse, I'll just give you the basic couple of elements. First place we encounter God as fire is right there on the uh, mountain where, I mean, you know, uh, Horeb there where Moses goes and there's a burning bush. And it's like, wow, what's this? You know, Moses, Moses, and God is speaking. And this is the fire of, 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 of God. Another time we experience it is that when Moses goes back up, he he's led the people out. What led them out? A pillar of fire. Right. And likewise, uh, that pillar of fire, he, he's up on the, he goes up on the mountaintop. It almost seems like a volcano that's being exper experienced that they, they were frightened and terrified. They said, Moses, you go up and talk to him. We can, we can't even bear to hear his voice. So there's this image of fire um, in the, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that mountaintop experience of Moses. Likewise, I could go even further in the Old Testament. You may remember that uh, several of the Psalms say that fire goes round about our God. Uh, he, he is a holy fire and his fire consumes his foes round about. It melt, the, his enemies melt like wax before him. Now, these are fairly negative images of fire, but the point is that it's only negative if you're not brought up to the temperature of glory yourself. So one final Old Testament text is Malachi, and it says this at the very, the very end of Malachi, um, which is, lo, the day is coming blazing like an oven when every all the wicked shall be burnt up 
and leaving neither root nor branch, says the Lord. But for you who fear my name, that day will arise like the sun with healing in its rays. So you see the same reality, but two different groups experiencing it very differently. There's the group that is the wicked who are burnt up by the by the fiery justice and fiery love of God. But um, the, the, those who have learned to love God and have been brought up to the temperature of glory can um, in every way uh, say that the that weather's just perfect. I don't even need sunglasses, you know, uh, you know, because the weather's perfect. So this is an example of, you know, it, it, the fire is only dreadful for those who are locked in sin and not holy enough. Now, then we go to the New Testament. And of course, the, uh, you know, there's always the image, um, you know, in the, there's several images in the book of Revelation, you know, about the uh, the fiery love of God, the seven torches that represent the churches. Uh, the book of Hebrews says, for our God is a consuming fire um, and uh, these kinds of things. So, you know, we must strive for the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. So real quickly off the top, those are a few scriptures. I don't have all the chapters and verses, but hopefully you'll know where to find them. You got any favorite songs? Favorite song? Fire, 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 fire fall on me on the day of Pentecost. Fire fall on me. It's an old Jamaican song. I like it. Um, Andrew asks, you know, we know little, so little about the Holy Spirit. Are there any theological writings from the church fathers on the Holy Spirit that you would <laughs> recommend for further reading? Wow. Uh, my goodness. I mean, from the fathers of the church, no, uh, nothing. I'm, I'm sorry. Just nothing comes to mind. I'm not saying it's not there. There's a very good book that came out some years ago by a French author. And I think it's still out, out there. It's called The Great Unknown, A Theology of the Holy Spirit. So The Great Unknown, that would be the title. And he does survey the Father's scripture and all that and makes the same point. Calling the Holy Spirit the great unknown, he too comments on, we seem to went through a long, dark period where the Holy Spirit sort of wasn't as obvious in the church. Now, I don't mean that, for example, in the Eastern rites, those have always been, if you pardon the expression, very fiery. I mean, they're full of song and I mean, worship is loud and long and it's full of, but I think that in the Western church, maybe because of some of our experiences, barbarians and uh, plagues and black death. And, you know, I mean, we had a lot of suffering in the Christian era and people were just focusing on getting to heaven. But now you see, I think we need to work on that. Um, I'd like to add that Father Theodore there um, recommended St. Basil on, or Basil. Basil, Basil the Great, yes. Uh, his uh, treatise on the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Thanks for that, Father. I, I do depend, you know, I, I like you over hundreds of books, but I can't just can't remember them all. But clearly the Eastern Fathers are going to be much more pneumatic, if you pardon the expression, much more rooted in thinking and praying and thinking about the Holy Spirit than generally speaking, the Western Fathers. But um, you'll probably be more likely to find something among the Eastern Fathers on those treatises about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, Monsignor Pope, another question came in. Where do we get these fruits? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we get them from the Holy Spirit. Now, in other words, um, Jesus said, for example, I have called you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Hmm? And uh, so, again, we, we realize, you know, first of all, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do a few things. No, he says nothing. Right. So the idea is that as we're if we're a branch on the vine and we're receiving life from Christ, Likewise, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, and these fruits are coming from God. The point we want to make is, again, to emphasize, these aren't just you did more spiritual push-ups than the next guy. Uh, this isn't something that you can simply cause. And I'm not saying we can cooperate, and we, we can and should, 
But they're fundamentally, they come from God, are a work of God in us, and to the degree that we will cooperate with God's grace, stay faithful to the sacraments, the word of God, regular confession, regular Holy Communion, the liturgy, Holy Fellowship, we will see these things come alive, but they are from God, even though we can do things to, if you will, keep the thorns from choking it off, you know, uh, pardon the expression, but manure around it. In other words, you know, keep keep it well fortified by our own works of piety and uh, repentance. Did I say, Adrian, did you have your, your hand raised? Yeah, I was just thinking about, so I didn't really know a lot when I was confirmed. And I'm pretty sure that the rest of my classmates didn't either. Mm. And so I was just wondering, like, so what happens if you're confirmed, you're given these gifts of the spirit, and then you just never cease to practice, you never start to practice them? Do they just, you just don't have, like, you have them, but they're dormant or like, you just. Yeah, I I think in in the case, especially of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, as well as all the other gifts, you know, St. Augustine, for example, let's go right to the root. St. Augustine says that if a person is baptized and um, never never practices the faith, you know, that, that baptism profits them not. Now, it doesn't mean they're not baptized. It doesn't mean the graces aren't available to them, but they have to repent, if you will, to unlock them. Or like I often tell parents, you know, this baptism, you know, for an infant, I'm thinking, but faith is planted in this child, this infant, like a seed. And they have infant faith. That's the kind of faith that's suitable for an infant, right? I don't know what kind of faith an infant has because I don't remember being a newborn infant. I don't know if any of you do. But I know that they have awareness. There's something going on. So they have a faith that is suited to them. But as they move through, parents have a couple of obligations. Um, They have an obligation to, as I say, unpack this gift, help the child to know as they get older, uh, they need to read them Bible stories, teach them prayers, help their mind and heart to come alive. They need to uh, take away to say, you know, the, remember how Jesus says some of the seed fell among thorns that choked it off. So they need to cultivate and get rid of the thorns, keep those things away from their children. They need to, um, um, you know, make sure that the birds of the air and other externalities and the anxieties of life don't choke it off. They need to work very hard to bring this faith uh, that comes to them from baptism to a fruition that's appropriate for a child at 10, at 12, at 15, at 21, and and so on. And then, of course, we, as we get older, have the obligation to allow, you know, Lord, I believe, but increase my faith. Um, so if even faith, the most fundamental ur gift and sacrament, can can and must grow, these, these um, must also grow, and as... as Faith can be choked off so that a person no longer benefits. It's still available. It's not like it's just removed or withheld. It's still available, but it's just not something that's bearing real fruit or is active in their life. So these things don't just simply work independent from us. They do require a cooperation. You you can choke it off, not kill it. Because anytime God can bring things to life, God can say to these dry bones, you know, you know, you know, you know, remember the dry bones, you know, Ezekiel prophesied over the dry bones and started to shake, rattle, and roll, and it came alive, you know. So again, God can bring what is dead to life. But yeah, so I hope that helps, uh, Adrian, okay? It's one of the coolest readings in scripture. They read it yeah. during the, the Pentecost vigil, which um, leads me to my the, the the last question that we'll have tonight, Monsignor, before we wrap things up, which is Pentecost tends to be, I mean, obviously a big 
feast day liturgically, but not celebrated as such. Do you have any suggestions on how to better celebrate the feast of Pentecost? Well, first of all, you know, I got to lament. So important was Pentecost in the church up until 1970 that every day after it was said, the second Sunday after Pentecost, third Sunday after Pentecost, because Pentecost, I don't, I don't really, and I'm not saying there aren't a lot of people that call it the birthday of the church, but I don't think so because infants, you know, birth implies infancy. I think what happens is that the church steps out and with a maturity on Pentecost. I think of it more as graduation day. The church is now to step out and execute the mission, you know, break the huddle and go execute the play. So here they are all huddled up in this room and all of a sudden break and out they go and they execute the play and the gospel goes to all the nations. But anyway, all that said, we used to celebrate Pentecost with an awareness that everything the church does really in a sense comes from Christ, but also through that quickening by the Holy Spirit that sent them forth with courage. Now, I can't change how the church numbers the days after Pentecost. I don't know about the Eastern churches, if any of you are in the Eastern rites, but um, I do that I said great regret that I have. One other thing, though, that that some priests can do, and it just depends a little bit on the calendar, and, and frankly, the Pope himself, Francis, sort of broke the possibility of doing this perfectly. But uh, there is this um, possibility of still trying to celebrate the octave of Pentecost, votive masses of the Holy Spirit for those eight days. But I think the Monday after Pentecost, what did Pope Francis set up? There's some feast which I'm not against, but it breaks the it breaks the possibility of celebrating Mary, Mother of the Church. Yeah, Mary, Mother yeah. of the Church, and it's great. It's a great time. I mean, but you know, the idea of celebrating the octave of Pentecost has been radically, you know, it's, it's, it, it used to be possible for a priest, at least on a pious basis, to spend the week celebrating masses of the Holy Spirit for the octave. So we should extend Pentecost, uh, but I think we should also now, but that's, that's a liturgical issue, and I can only do so much about that. So how do we extend the, you know, the sense of Pentecost? Well, well, what is Pentecost? You know, what, what did it do? Frightened men and women were gathered, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and suddenly they were courageous. I think... For all of us, if you've had the sacrament of confirmation, as I say, the catechism describes it as your personal Pentecost. So the question for you and for me is, uh, how are you living that? Or is that just a ritual that you went through when you're in eighth grade? You know, you know, you know how most eighth graders, I hate, I hate celebrating it in eighth grade. I don't blame eighth graders. It's just their stage of development, but they're completely inwardly focused. What do people think of me? Where do I fit in? Who am I? They're not thinking about I'd rather celebrate the kids are much more open. So age seven, I think, would be good right right before they have their first communion. But um, or older. But either way, I mean, they're just they they kind of come up like too cool for school. And the bishop says, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Peace be with you and with your spirit. Can I go now? Okay, you know, I mean, it's dreadful, dreadful. But. You did receive the sacrament, though. Where, however, whatever mood you're in, whether you were like a typical eighth grader like I was, I got in the seventh grade. Too cool for school, man. Let's get this thing over, man. I don't take a dumb tie off, dumb red tie, you know. Uh, clip on, by the way. But now look at me. You can't shut me up. My 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 personal Pentecost. I'm not using just my priesthood right now. I am using my confirmation. You know, I'm I'm fired up. I'm excited. 
I hope I'm courageous. Maybe not as courageous as I should be. You can always be more courageous. And courage is one of the least observed virtues in the human family. But all that said, um, how can you sort of say, what can I do to more courageously, more joyfully witness to the Catholic and Christian faith that I've received? You know, um, what can I do? Because there's a mission to the ends of the earth and you are witnesses of these things. And so that's how I think personally we should live uh, Pentecost. You know, even if the days are no longer numbered and we go into this um, tempest per annum, you know, these ordin the so-called ordinary or ordinal time, you know, um, just remember it really is time after Pentecost. Just a quick uh, response to your question, Monsignor. In the Byzantine Rite, we do still call, refer to it as the Sundays after Pentecost, and we still have the Monday after Pentecost is the Feast of the Holy Trinity. Great, great, yeah. So you see, as I say, I, I, it's a deep, deep regret I have, and I think it's one of the bigger mistakes we made. There's a, there's a story told about Paul the Sixth. I don't know if it's true, but he came down on the Monday after Pentecost, and he saw green vestments put out. He said, well, what's going on? What happened? I thought this was the octave. He says, well, it's no, that's been abolished. He said, who did that? You did, Holy Father. And they said he wept. Okay, then go change it. Don't just weep. You know, where's the heroic leadership? Well, that was a mistake. You know, but anyway, a lot of things we have to look back and, you know, I'm not an enemy of the Second Vatican Council. I, I don't hate the new mass. I love the new mass. I like the old mass, too. But I so I'm not trying to be a firebrand here about all that stuff. I'm simply saying that I do think that there are things we should go back and look and say, we made a mistake here. Mm. And um, I'm very, very disappointed that we've lost the that Pentecost is such a key feast for the church and it's celebrated almost without any, we get it overdone on a Sunday and we forget about it. And it's just not right. Monsignor, would you close us in prayer? Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. And so now, Lord, we pray, we do ask for a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we can maybe hold on to this little list by the um, that, I'll, that I'll provide. But we, we this list of these virtues, I mean, these fruits of the Holy Spirit and help us just to, maybe one of them you want us to work on a little more. Lord, I need to maybe I need to love people. Maybe I need to be more generous. Whatever you show me, Lord, help me to work on it. And um, may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Monsignor Charles Pope, it has been a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.